The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and today I'm joined by China Global South's Africa editor, Jeronima, from the beautiful island of Mauritius. A very good afternoon to you, Jeron. Good afternoon, Eric. Well, Jero, all week we have been following the events in Johannesburg where four leaders and one foreign minister, but five representatives, got together for the BRICS summit. That's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. South Africa hosted it this year. As we are recording this, things are finally wrapping up after a three-day get-together. And uh, let's just quickly run through some of the main highlights. A lot of people were looking to see if Chinese President Xi Jinping and uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi were going to meet on the sidelines of the BRICS. This was a very important meeting. Tensions between these two countries have really deteriorated a lot over the past three years. Xi Jinping had a number of sideline meetings. He met with the Ethiopian Prime Minister. He met with Maki Sal of Senegal. By the way, in Ethiopia, a little bit of news there. Xi Jinping announced that uh, debt servicing payments in 2023 for all debts that mature in 2023 and 2024 will be suspended as part of the Common Framework Debt Restructuring Initiative. And that's a very important piece of news there, simply because a lot of people aren't aware that Ethiopia is China's second largest borrower in Africa. So some progress on the debt restructuring front there. He also met with the Cuban president and the prime minister of Bangladesh. We did not get news of a new BRICS currency. That was something else that people were expecting to come out of this. In fact, it was not mentioned at all in the 26-page joint statement that was published on Thursday. But they did enlarge the group, and that is the main takeaway. Let's get this, you know, I almost want a drum roll right now to find out who are the lucky winners of the 22 countries that applied to join the BRICS. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa announced the new members. We have decided to invite the Argentine Republic, the Arab Republic of Egypt, the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, the Islamic Republic of Iran, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates to become full members of BRICS, the membership will take effect from the 1st of January 2024. So there we have it, Giraud. Those are the new members. So it's BRICS Plus now. We don't have a new name for this group. I don't know how they're going to get the acronyms of 11 different countries to actually sound like anything reasonable. What was your reaction not only to the announcement of the enlarged group, but also to the week as a whole? What were your key takeaways? My reaction to the announcement was quite, I don't know if I was surprised or if it was expected. We were basically on the fence because we didn't know much about how much expansion is going to happen. There were still talks about it. We didn't know if the BRICS had found an agreement on the process and the conditions of 
adding up new members and how the BRICS will change in its functioning and its, its structure. We didn't have all those details. So we are kind of all kind of waiting to see what's going to come up, if there was going to be an expansion and who's going to be allowed. So when I see who's allowed, I'm like, yes, the BRICS have enlarged. They have new members. And I see the approach was original approach. They went from Latin America, Africa, Middle East. But surprisingly, they did not touch Southeast Asia. No country from Asia I kind of wonder why. Maybe we're going to unpack it on why those uh, this choice was made. Maybe later on during the conversation, we maybe we're going to go deep into understanding what's going on and what this expansion is going to entail. But so far for me, the big surprise is to see Iran and Saudi Arabia in the same group with the BRICS, with China, with Russia. So for me, for the Middle East, I expect that maybe China is now is going to get much more space for it to express its uh, peacemaking operation in between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And of course, it's also extending, enlarging its own political clout in the region. And because of Saudi Arabia joining the group and Iran being in the mix, now I believe that Israel is going to pay attention to what's happening in the BRICS right now. So during the conversation, I'm going to impact other things that we've mentioned during the week, but let's see what's going on. Well, it's really important for Africa because this is one of the few international multilateral forums where Africans make up a third or almost a third of the entire membership now. So we have Egypt, we have Ethiopia and South Africa out of 11 members. That is notable. I mean, you don't see that very often. Yeah, true. It's very notable. The change that we see now, we see the three regions of Africa, North Africa, East Africa, and Southern Africa. The big absent of this now is like Sub-Saharan Africa. I'd say Sub-Saharan between Sahel region to Southern Africa, Western Africa, Central Africa, not present. Nigeria is not there. I don't know if they were even wanting to join the BRICS. DRC is not there. And the other main, odd main countries in the Sub-Saharan Africa are not there. Let's see how it's going to evolve. But yes, it's already a good progress to see Egypt and Ethiopia join the group. Well, they said that more countries will be added in the future. They also announced in the final statement that next year's BRICS summit will take place in Kazan, Russia, which is southwestern Russia. That is going to be interesting simply because... Well, it's in Russia. <laughs> so Russia is a pretty controversial place these days. But we're going to focus today on Africa at least as much as we can, because this is really an international discussion about the BRICS. But we thought we would invite some different voices today. And we're going to bring you a, a couple of different voices, which I'm really excited about. But first, we're thrilled to have back on the show again our old friend, Eric Kavins, who is a longtime China-Africa scholar based in in Nairobi, Kenya, and he joins us on the line from Nairobi. He actually spent part of the week in Johannesburg participating in some of the events surrounding the BRICS, so we're thrilled, Adiri, to have you back on the show again and to get your first-hand perspective. Thank you very much, Eric and Derud, for the opportunity to come back to your show and share with you some perspectives on uh, some of these global happenings. Yes, BRICS is one of the most watched, especially this year's summit was one of the most watched geopolitical, I think, event of the year. And, and it's just concluding in uh, Joburg, Santon. I was lucky to be part of some of the side events, you know, headlining BRICS, a media forum down there. And as you said, one of the most anticipated possible you know, outcomes of uh, this year's summit was on the issue of expansion. This was important for especially African countries. Remember, over 40 countries had expressed interest to join the BRICS formation. And out of this number, half of that number was actually from Africa. So while it's uh, true that just about two African countries managed to get the green light to join in January 2024, a number of them 
perhaps are going home disappointed because also a number of African heads of state were participating through the invite from uh, the South African government. As you see, this BRICS summit was basically themed BRICS and African development. So it was uh, rather pointed towards the direction of Africa, how the formation could better work with uh, the African countries in um, what is called a new fashion of South-South uh, you know, collaboration. So the fact that they found a formula eventually and made some decision to expand this uh, grouping up to six countries is something that I think would be discussed for a very long time coming. But I remember you also mentioned why there were only probably six and maybe why Africa is uh, now having nearly a third. I think the first answer is simply because African countries formed the majority of countries that had expressed interest to join the BRICS. Uh, secondly, I think the theme of this BRICS summit laid a lot of emphasis on how the formation can collaborate effectively with the developing countries, especially in Africa. And so to me, I think this BRICS is uh, pushing a narrative that it is time for South-South countries to work together. Most of these economies are based in Africa, and therefore this is certainly good news. The fact that is there a formula, I don't know what it looks like, but at least it was announced that they have at least agreed on a formula or guideline on how to add additional members going forward. And so maybe we are likely to see more countries joining. Okay. Well, let me just put it out there. And, you know, all week I've been writing about this in the newsletter and here I think you get our newsletter. So you might've been seeing a lot of my commentary on this. I got to be honest with you. I'm still a little bit confused about what exactly is the BRICS and what has it done? This is a group that's been around for eight years beyond making a mid-tier development finance bank based in Shanghai. Can you maybe just elaborate a little bit on what this thing is, what it's done, and how, if they haven't done much with five members, how is it going to be easier when they've got now 11 members, and then, as you've pointed out, next year they're going to add potentially even more, and we know that things get more complicated when you have more people in the room. That's in our families, that's with our friends, that's at the office, and that's the same in diplomacy as well. So let's just kind of start with... What is the BRICS and why are you excited about it? And besides the fact that you want to punch the Americans in the face, okay, I get that. <laughs> that that's important. I've said the resentment and the grievance-based politics, super important. But beyond punching America in the nose, what does this thing actually do? Well, I think from my point of view, the BRICS actually provides an opportunity for these member countries to reimagine how they can, you know, strengthen their economic collaboration and, uh, you know, push towards some sustainable development objectives. If America is a common challenge to the BRICS countries, I don't think it is. I think that these countries, since their formation in um, 2009, was driven more by the fact that they needed diversity, equality, and shared vision that brought them together. And so opening it up to other members still would, in my view, respond to these three broad, you know, objectives that brought the initial four members together before South Africa was included. And I think the inclusion of South Africa was simply on the basis that this was a group that was talking about championing the common interest of developing countries, most of which are based in Africa, and there was no African country represented. So by including South Africa, they were essentially opening the door for a more rational talk about South-South uh, collaboration. Yes, I understand that that's an ambition. That sounds more like what a think tank does, honestly, than a multilateral organization that is supposedly supposed to do policymaking and have something tangible for the constituents of these different countries. Eight years has gone by. What are the proof points that shows, that gives you the confidence that this thing actually can do something? 
No, I think it can. I mean, look at what uh, the New Development Bank is doing, for example, uh, supporting over 93 infrastructure projects since, you know, its formation about a decade now in the making. And and, and they are uh, simply saying we are willing to do more with our members and, and, and interested parties. Remember that one of the biggest issues about international politics today is about international development financing. The New Development Bank, supported by BRICS, has been very forthright in terms of promoting this kind of idea that uh, developing countries can have access to probably low-cost investment financing package, but more than that, that they are willing to use even local currencies in terms of dispensing their loans to these African countries and other other developing countries elsewhere. This is breaking the rule about, you know, the dollar-dominated loans that have traditionally come from the Global North-led uh, multilateral platforms. So even if you want to think about it that way, and certainly it takes a lot of time, in my view, to, you know, fashion some of these uh, multilateral settings, I think it is work in progress. BRICS, in my view, is not yet there, but they are making some progress. And besides the summit itself, there are a number of mechanisms that are being put in place to operationalize BRICS. So we have, for example, ministerial caucuses that are discussing varied topics. We have uh, incidences like the Business Forum, which basically aims to showcase opportunities available for investments in developing countries. We have, uh, for example, the Women Business Alliance that is basically trying to promote entrepreneurship among young women and women generally. So these are some of the initiatives, including cultural you know, exchanges. But beyond that, BRICS provides a platform, in my view, for bilateral talks and collaboration with the member countries. Just look at what has happened between China and South Africa in the lead up to this summit. Those discussions about collaboration in terms of uh, energy, you know, infrastructure, implementation of Belt and Road Initiative, including space exploration. So if BRICS can create that forum where members can find it easy to discuss either bilaterally or multilaterally, I think it's a win for member states. But it's really funny that you mentioned bilateral talk between BRICS members because India's in the BRICS, China and the BRICS. It didn't stop them to be fighting over the last, what, five, six years on the borders issues and different issues. So you kind of find yourself in a context where you have this platform. Yes, you're right. Bilateral agreements, talks and everything, multilateralism and everything. But when you look at those two big members, China and India, they are unable to look eye to eye and have a conversation about the issue they're facing. But they're both BRICS members. So you kind of have to try to understand what really BRICS is doing, what's really happening. You were mentioning very interesting stuff that is a work in progress. They're doing some progress on the ground. They're putting some measures on the ground. But the reality is we still have yet to see to kind of determine what what BRICS is. Is BRICS a commercial or a trade organization? Because if it's a trade organization, the question will be how much trade has happened between BRICS members? How much have changed? Is it, I don't know, a political organization or is it a geostrategic organization? It's still those questions that puts us in a context where BRICS expansions comes with a risk because when you even listen the discourse that coming out of Johannesburg, what people had to say, what different presidents had to say yesterday during the plenary meeting, you kind of understand that each president adds his own understanding and its own expectation of what can be done and what should be done into the BRICS. So you kind of wonder, when you are now expanding, are those new members are coming with the same expectation? Are those new old members are looking at the same direction? And what's really going to change and to make BRICS become relevant? And I think those questions about what BRICS is needs really to be resolved and really be clarified for people to know exactly what BRICS does. Well, let's get a perspective now from someone who's been 
in the press room all week following the events on the ground throughout the course of the BRICS conference. And she's been really, again, providing some fascinating insights in the media. We're thrilled to have back on the show our old friend Sanusha Naidu, who is a foreign policy analyst at the Institute for Global Dialogue in South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Sanusha. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, Eric, it's been always a pleasure to be on the show with you. And yeah, it's been a hectic week here at the BRICS Summit. But I think we now have some kind of trajectory around where these BRICS are going. Okay, so the big trajectory right now is BRICS expansion. That is the takeaway from the declaration that was released today. Let's go through it. Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates. What's your take on it? Well, for me, I think, Three things stand out, but I think the most cursory perspective is look at the countries that are there. They're mainly Islamic states, Muslim states. And that for me is very interesting because I think it raises the question as well in terms of the negotiation, the discussion, the interactions and the, and the final consensus that was reached that these are the, the, the first of the cohort of countries that will be in an expanded BRICS going forward, what some are calling the 2.0, is really a kind of fashioning of China and India's Middle East policy. It's really the kind of context, that geostrategic context of the Middle East that's coming out right now in terms of how the countries like Egypt, which is, yeah, it's in North Africa, it's in Africa and it's really up north, but it actually has quite an interesting identity within the context of how China and India identify uh, it as being in Africa, but not being in Africa. So it's almost in Africa and out of Africa because of its relationship in terms of the North African, the MENA region and so forth, but also in the Middle East. Then, of course, you've got the UAE, then you've got Saudi Arabia, you've got Iran. And these are interesting countries for both China and India. And I think to a large extent, when I gave an interview last week on this very same issue about expansion, I said, we've got to look at not just what the expansion of the BRICS would mean for the geopolitical architecture, what it means for the BRICS's regional power bases and influences and engagements. And I think it came out in the, in the Prime Minister Modi's concluding remarks this morning, where he spoke about how much the bilateral is important. So you're beginning to see, you know, you, Eric, you keep talking about how critical the relationship between China and India are in the BRICS, in terms of how it's going to be critical for where the BRICS goes in terms of census and whatever. And you did an interesting interview yesterday with one of the South African stations, Cape Talk, about this. And you've been mentioning it in the newsletter as well. But I think you finally found some of this in terms of that consensus, in terms of both of them are seeing the Middle East perhaps for other purposes as well. But they're seeing the Middle East as that kind of process. But they actually, they, they reach consensus around countries that they feel are critical to their kind of regional engagement and the Middle East policy for their respective countries. One of the few points of disagreement that emerged this week was the pressure coming from Moscow and Beijing to make the BRICS into some kind of counterweight to U.S. and European-led institutions. They said the G7. Of course, Japan is part of the G7 as well. These are these global north institutions. And there was pushback from Brazil and your president, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, who said we don't want to politicize the BRICS. However, the inclusion of Iran now in this group means that an organization has Russia, mm -hmm. China, and mm -hmm. Iran in it. What do you think the reaction is going to be in the White House and on Capitol Hill and by Tucker Carlson representing the <laughs> broad swaths of American 
people who are very suspicious of any group that includes Russia, China, and Iran? I think now they've basically, I mean, yesterday, just listening to some of the periphery conversations that were happening at the media center, and there were some interesting media houses from different parts of the global north who were just there, but consistently saying, ah, we're not going to see anything substantive, or we're not going to see them coming to any consensus around this. And I think to my mind, this now jostles them to understand that Iran has found and is a grouping that now has Iran, Russia and China in the same context. But it goes beyond just Iran. I think it also makes the US stand up, the White House stand up and take notice because the kind of impression one got was let's dismiss it because it's not going to happen or it won't have traction. But you got Saudi Arabia there and Saudi Arabia in terms of its relationship with the White House, with the Biden administration, it hasn't been smooth sailing for them. So you've got two countries. You've got Saudi Arabia, you've got Iran. And I think this is now also part for the course in terms of what happens to Washington's Middle East policy in terms of the role that they had previously. And I read a very fascinating article by a commentator from one of the, I think it was one of the Gulf states. And he was actually arguing why the Arab countries want to join the BRICS. It's partly also because they actually feel that there's a sense of not disengagement as such, but a sense of not looking at the Middle East in the way that it previously was quite a strategic ambit for Washington. And of course, Saudi Arabia is taking exception under the crown prince. He's taking exception to issues around, you know, what's happening in terms of the rhetoric that's coming out of the White House in terms of what's happening in Saudi Arabia, whether it's the human rights question. But also in terms of the fact that there's this whole question around the energy corporation. And that's the other thing I want to circle back to. Look at the countries that have joined the BRICS. There's going to be energy corporation, not just fossil fuel corporation, but renewable energy corporation, diversification of the energy corporation structures as well. And I also want to talk about Egypt and Ethiopia. I mean... Having Ethiopia as the African country from the Horn of Africa, so to speak, from that region, kind of balances out as well this tension that Ethiopia and Egypt have over the Nile River and over the Grand Renaissance Dam. There's this incredible issue, I think, where if you look at Saudi Arabia and Iran, the kind of towing of relations that China will, will say that they facilitated. Now you've got to see this in the context of how do you bring these two countries, which are critical in terms of that regional geostrategic and geopolitical architecture around the Red Sea coming down to the the Horn of Africa, where all of these maritime sea lanes, the geostrategic issues around logistics and ports and so forth, critical uh, security architecture around critical minerals and other kind of transport corridors, is going to have to start working with each other. So I think, you know, at some point, it will be interesting to see, hopefully today or very soon, what the criteria was and the guidelines in these first five countries that I've joined. Okay, so you're still at the summit. You've been there all week. It's wrapping up. Help us understand and put this into some kind of context. Reflect on what happened this week. What was the big takeaway for you? What are you thinking and what are you feeling about it? The big happening in the room amongst all of the media was really the question of expansion. I think it was a situation where the speculation was up until last night when I left the media center, there was still uncertainty about whether there will be a declaration that will be announced this morning. Some were saying it would have been a leaders summit kind of joint statement or something like that, but not something that would actually say we have decided on these countries that will join on the 1st of January 2024. And so this morning, I think it was quite interesting because there was a lot of anticipation around this. And that was the one big kind of issue in the room that 
people were divided on. They didn't feel that it was going to come out, including myself. You know, um, we didn't think that up until last night there was going to be an announcement of this magnitude for the BRICS. So the die has been cast. The other thing that was quite interesting is there were the issues around the BRICS Pay, uh, the BRICS uh, localization of the BRICS payment system, trying to find a payment system that doesn't necessarily only create the dollar as the transaction currency. That was the big conversation in the room. And there was issues around what will this mean if BRICS goes down that route or institutionalizes it further? Does it mean that you, you're moving away from the dollar? So there was confusion as well within certain of the, the, the narrative, the discussions around to what extent does this kind of localization of, of, of the BRICS currencies in terms of international payment, what does it mean? And does this mean that that constitutes a BRICS currency? And I think the, the CEO of Standard Bank, Sim Shabalala, when he did his report back on Tuesday evening after the BRICS business meeting in the morning, made it very clear that they had the discussion. And they had the discussion over the international payment structure and they had the discussion of whether the BRICS needed to create a third reserve currency. And he made a very bold statement he said at that at this point there was no consensus reached that for me kind of determined the fact that it was now something that we should not continually try and bring into the narrative because they said no consensus has been reached on this it doesn't mean they're not going to have the discussion on it but it's just kind of giving us a sense of where it was. And then, of course, other issues that were coming in that kind of sidetracked from the, from the meeting is the media house was, a, I mean, the media center was a buzz about when President Xi Jinping didn't attend the Tuesday afternoon uh, kind of uh, remarks and stuff like that. Then, of course, he got overshadowed by Prime Minister Modi being a bit miffed by the fact that a cabinet minister was going to receive him at the Waterkloof military base. It seems everybody is now kind of like on the same page. They all look very happy walking out of the room this morning. You know, and, and the big thing that did get attention was um, the landing of the vehicle on the moon by India. Got a lot of attention in terms of space cooperation and so forth. So it took us a little bit away from the geoeconomic, the, the trade. The, I mean, one of the things I think we, we have to also think about going forward is what does intra-BRICS trade mean? Now, what does intra-BRICS trade cooperation look like? In terms of going forward, so you've got new members that have that are coming on board in January 2024. Remember, UAE and Iran and uh, are, are members of the bank, so there is that alignment between those two spaces. And most importantly, I think um, there's a bit of a sigh of relief that now we know that the BRICS have set the course in terms of expansion. So I think that's going to be the buzz in the center for most of the day. But having said that as well, Eric, there's the China-Africa discussion that's happening as well. So that's also something we need to pay attention to because that is where President Xi Jinping and President Ramaphosa are going to be as well for some of the day around this outreach discussion in, uh, in terms of the outreach and so forth. And that is almost like the precursor for FOCAC. And don't forget that now two of the BRICS members are now under quite a serious regime of U.S. and European sanctions, both Iran and Russia. So that could be a complicating factor in the trade relationship among the new enlarged BRICS group. Sanusha, thank you so much for taking the time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule this week to give us the take from Johannesburg. Sanusha Naidu is a foreign policy analyst at the Institute for Global Dialogue in South Africa. Sanusha, thank you so much again. Absolute pleasure. And thank you for reaching out. I always enjoy our discussions. 
Adhiri, let's pick up the conversation that uh, Sunusha covered a lot of ground. I want to get your take on this question of Iran. The Many of the countries in the BRICS Plus group have been very adamant, saying we don't want to be in the middle of any new Cold War, any great power competition, whatever you want to call it is. But now you have a group that includes Iran, Russia, and China, three of the United States' most potent adversaries. And the news today, when Washington wakes up to learn about the new members, they're not going to be pleased about what this is. Now, up until now, the United States has generally not paid much attention to the BRICS. It hasn't registered much. There hasn't been an enormous amount of media coverage. I mean, the New York Times started ramping up coverage, you know, midweek. But they're going to be focusing on it now. This is now going to become a much more adversarial relationship with the United States and some European countries who are not happy with Iran either. Talk to us a little bit about the geopolitics you think about, including Iran and the decision to include Iran in the first round of admissions to the BRICS. Thanks, Eric, for the question. I think as uh, your earlier speaker mentioned, uh, the inclusion of Iran certainly uh, presents a complication maybe for the overall BRICS view from Washington. And I don't think that they are paying less attention. Maybe they are not just talking about it as much. In terms of attention, I think quite a number of people are watching closely what's happening in the BRICS. And this is why BRICS becomes very relevant. It is offering an alternative for countries that believe that they have shared you know, interest to pull together and try to, you know, work through their challenges, including geopolitical challenges. And as you know already, that uh, we quite don't understand the criteria that was used, really. It has not been publicized so that we know these were the boxes that all these countries that were added on the first leg ticked so that they are added onto the list. But I think that what is becoming increasingly clear is that uh, if there is an isolation from Washington, for example, that these countries have a home, that they can still have certain things to do, not necessarily in opposition of uh, Washington, but certainly in terms of uh, realizing their own political and economic interests. So Iran is, of course, as you have indicated, has come under very heavy sanctions from Washington and is very closely watched from the European capitals. But I think addition onto the BRICS makes more sense, not on the critical nature of Iran, but I think what I would call the importance of BRICS itself. What does Iran bring on the table that then makes BRICS different than before? And this is the question that perhaps is going to be troubling minds in Washington and European capitals. But looking at it from an African uh, you know, perspective, if there are countries that are feeling you know, isolated increasingly by U.S., which is the, the most dominant global power today, that there are certain things that they are not able to do. Then they find a vehicle which can allow them to have some form of engagement. They will welcome it. They will welcome it. But I think as uh, many leaders in the BRICS uh, grouping has mentioned over time, including during this summit, is that their formation is not necessarily to oppose any other country. Well, this is more of rhetoric than reality, but we know that it can facilitate certain engagement that might but, be... But Adhiri, they, they say that, but that's not true. I mean, <laughs> we got to be honest here. Russia, Iran oppose the West, and China is extraordinarily articulate on its objection in opposing the West. That's just not accurate to say that they don't oppose other countries. Maybe, no, at individual level, but it's also true, Eric, that... Uh, all these countries, maybe, uh, let me talk about, for example, China has uh, one of the most 
dynamic relationship with the West, you know, US and European capitals, for example. So yes, there are contentions and there's going to be there. There's no end to uh, this kind of geopolitical tensions that we're witnessing. But I think what is uh, clear is that uh, the BRICS could be making a statement to the US that uh, we are in a position to attract more members. We might be more attractive to members who are finding themselves increasingly isolated as a result of the US activities internationally. So if that is the case, then I think that uh, the, the, the BRICS is simply positioning itself as an alternative grouping of countries that do not get a favorable view from Washington. And then that cannot be a view, uh, it cannot be a problem of these countries that find themselves increasingly at odds with Washington. It's about how Washington relates to these countries. Is Washington driving them right into the arms of the BRICS? Well, your guess is as good as mine. So I think to that extent, if we have to say, for example, that the inclusion of Iran, where Russia and China already exist, is going to be a headache for Washington, well, then I think that just does seem to be how politics work. <laughs> if somebody doesn't appreciate you, look elsewhere. Well, and it's interesting because you got to assume that behind the scenes, the United States was lobbying India, Brazil, and South Africa to not vote. Because remember, all of the decisions about who they admit was by consensus. So all of the five members had to have agreed to this. And by the expression of voting for Iran in particular, and maybe even Saudi Arabia as well, that was an articulation of strategic autonomy from the United States, especially India, where the United States, Modi was just in the White House last month, and the United States really sees India as a potential ally in Asia against China. India, of course, is a founding member of the Quad. So this was another expression of India to say, you know what, we may work with you here, but we're going to do something else there. Giraud, this is an issue that you follow quite a bit in the DR Congo, where you're from, and an issue that we cover quite a bit in terms of the relationship between the United States, China, and the other major powers. Let's kind of have you pick up the conversation in terms of what you think the inclusion of Iran and the new dynamics of the membership means for the great power competition. I think it just brings a new dynamic into the fold, into that discussion that we have globally. Of course, as you mentioned earlier, Washington will be waking up wondering what's happening now. And I think we're also going to see some reaction coming from Israel to quite understand now that they have Iran and Saudi Arabia in a group called BRICS and to try to get what's going to happen out of this new dynamic. The question of Iran, of course, raised the problem of like, what's going to be Beijing clout in the MENA region? We remember that a few months ago, go Beijing kind of broke the peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And now having the both of them drink the bricks is kind of opening Beijing much more space into that region, giving it more political clout. And that political clout can be now something to worry about from Washington perspective, beyond the fact that they're going to gonna have Iran and, and Russia in the same group. You're just having China now having... I'd say strong allies in the Middle East in the same group called BRICS can be something to be worried about to see how they're going to move forward. But my problem remains with, with the BRICS going to be as long as they don't really define what they are, what they do, and what's their aim, what's their goal, I really don't know what they can really achieve on the short term and the long run, what they really can achieve, what they can really do. For now, we are going just to see a lot of geopolitical movement. We're going to see a lot of frictions happening a lot of comments to read about people you know speculating about what's going to happen but as long as BRICS itself does not define itself who they are what they do and where they're going we're just going to have to follow them like 
year after year to see how they're going to move in that direction. So, so for the great power competitions, I'd say if I'm from Brussels, London and Washington, I'd wait to see what declaration, how they're going to move before taking any further action. Because I think it's going to be really premature for any Western capital to try to take action right now against something that's still in the way defining itself and how it's going to relate on the global stage. So, Giraud, I think to answer your question, let's go back to what Adhiri was talking about, that maybe we're looking at this the wrong way in terms of hard policies, you know, five-point action plans and things like that. It's a forum for countries that have been alienated and isolated by the U.S. and European-led system. And I think, again, you know, measuring it in terms of, well, is it as effective as a group like NATO, which, you know, was really effective in many respects? No, it's not going to be that kind of organization. But I think what we cannot ignore is the grievance and the frustration that people have about the duplicity and the hypocrisy of so many Western policies where they are saying, do as I say, not as I do. And people in Global South countries, in Africa and elsewhere have said, F it, we've had enough. And if that's what the BRICS becomes, that's an important role in the global discourse. So you believe that we might be seeing an alternative international community. The BRICS is going to become that new international community where values and norms are set by those powerful countries. But the thing is, even if it becomes that new alternative like international community, I kind of wonder what's going to be the power, the influence, and what people, what countries are going to gain by joining the BRICS. What they're going to gain, economically speaking, of course they're going to gain in terms of diplomatic recognition. You know, now they, are free, they, they still talk to people, they still talk to countries. But what they're going really to gain on the longer run in terms of like, you know, on the, on the global stage, and Unless you have half of or the whole global south joining the BRICS and say, you know, we are now on board with the BRICS, yes. But if it's not the case, if you still have many countries in the global south who are still mixing their relationship with Washington, with the European countries, and all with the BRICS members, you're kind of like, yeah, it's not really an alternative. It's going to be a kind of group for certain countries, but for the remaining part of the global south who are saying we don't want to get in the midst of a fight between the US, China, Russia, any other big countries, the BRICS doesn't really offer the alternative of being an alternative international community. They're going to come, they're coming there to get something. And the question is what they're getting out of the BRICS grouping. Yeah, Jeru raises very important question. But I think for me is that uh, the BRICS indeed is ushering a new form of multilateralism or regional multilateralism, if you like, largely defined in terms of South-South collaboration. And so the members that are purely interested in joining this group, they're not joining, in my view, with an interest in military alliances or anything like that. Their major drivers is about economic inclusion. The BRICS, as it stands today, by January 2024, we account for over 46% of the global population. Now, that's a huge market. Now, similarly, the BRICS countries as constituted today, China being the most dominant partner of most African countries, being part of the BRICS, is also a major source of capital and development financing. So the countries that are really interested in coming on to the BRICS is asking the question, how do we develop? And if we can get markets for our product diversification, if we can get financing for our development programs, if we can combine efforts and resources to drive away climate change. Now, these are real concerns for many of these emerging economies that they find value discussing within the BRICS framework. Because if you look, for example, at China's collaboration with Africa, 
in the last decade, Chinese activities here in the continent has contributed to over 25% of economic growth. You know, China today is Africa's largest trade partner and a major one in terms of uh, the clean energy transition. So these aspirations are the ones that are being fronted by the BRICS members. And I think that the more they, they band together, the more chances they have of raising prospects for some discourse towards economic factors, first of all, cultural affinity, and even in terms of breaking this so-called Western discourse hegemony where the voices of these smaller countries have been muted over time by the sheer power of the Western capital and infrastructure, including the media space. I agree with what you say, and I do believe that as the grievances that those countries are expressing are really valid, and I do believe that they are really worth something that for them to have a space where they can express themselves. But yesterday, when you were listening to President Xi Jinping's speech, he mentioned something, mentioned the fact that BRICS members should now working together to protect each other core interest. And when you look at China, for instance, China's core interest, you're going to see that some of the China's core interests going to put many countries at odds with Washington or even European countries. So in the moment where those issues are going to be raised on the table, are going to become real issues on a geopolitical level, the question is, those new members, I know Saudi Arabia, Iran maybe, but those new members who are joining the BRICS are going to follow those China or Russia in the defense of their core interests or they're going to say, you know, we're just here for the economic interest and for the trade and everything else. But when it comes to those core interests in geopolitics, we're not really there. If they adopt that position, we might be seeing some cracks in the BRICS. We already see the cracks between China and India, but we might see other cracks erupting in that grouping. Well, when we look at the geographic distribution of the new BRICS Plus membership, the Americas are pretty well represented now with Brazil and Argentina. Clearly, the Middle East and the Persian Gulf area is very well represented. UAE, Egypt, Iran, of course, and Saudi Arabia. Africa, as we mentioned, has three members, if Egypt counts twice there. One glaring, glaring absence, though, as Giraud pointed out at the beginning of our discussion, is here in Southeast Asia, where I'm at. I mean, this is a region of almost seven, 800 million people and no membership. Now, Indonesia was on the list to join. And I'll be honest with you, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, I would have had my money on Indonesia way ahead of Iran. Indonesia is a market of 300 million people. It's at the nexus of Southeast Asian trade. It's one of the, you know, the most important countries here in this vital region, and it's the largest Muslim country in the world. So in many ways, it ticks all of the boxes, but Indonesia was not included on the list. So I wanted to find out a little bit more about some of the thinking that was going on in the discussion in Indonesia, because Joko Widodo, the president, went to Johannesburg. Uh, He's on an African tour right now. And uh, what were people thinking in in Jakarta about all of the different events? And for that, we're thrilled to have on the show again, China Global South's uh, Jakarta correspondent, Antonia Timmerman. Antonia, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. So Joko is in South Africa. He's been there all week. He went to go attend the BRICS Summit. What's been the vibe in Indonesia, in the press and in the commentariat online about the BRICS and Joko's trip there? Joko's decision to attend BRICS this year is definitely piquing curiosity and a little bit of cautious excitement among the observers and the analysts that I spoke to. 
the excitement is because in the last few years, Indonesia has been mostly preoccupied with ASEAN and a lot of matters in the regional level. And so seeing that Jokowi is stepping up his engagement in the wider international level, and especially because it's nearing the end of his presidency, um, that's definitely perking up some ears and, you know, stirring up some conversations. Uh, not in a negative way. The vibe I'm getting from different people in different capacities is for sure positive because people can see the possibilities. They can see the potential benefits, potential rewards economically, especially if Indonesia engage with the quote-unquote non-traditional partners like Brazil, like Russia or South Africa. But at the same time, people are cautious because we are still trying to measure or weigh the political cost that could come with a heavier engagement with BRICS. Yeah, so, so based on the people you were speaking with, they're looking at the benefits largely in the economic terms, in terms of increased trade, maybe Indonesia diversifying its trade beyond Asia and Southeast Asia in particular. So that's the benefits. But there's some apprehension about the geopolitics. You know, China and Russia have wanted to position the BRICS as a counterweight to the G7. It's interesting because Indonesia has this very, very important history of being the birthplace of the non-aligned movement. And so getting sucked into the great power competitions doesn't seem like something that Joko and others in Jakarta would want to do. And they've really done a pretty effective job at keeping their head down in the current tensions between the United States and China. So talk to us a little bit about that history dating back to the Bandung conference and this importance of the non-aligned movement to Indonesia. So when we talk about Jokowi's visit to BRICS, I think first we need to remember that Jokowi is not only attending BRICS in South Africa, and this is part of his larger schedule, visiting other African countries. So he's also visiting Kenya, visiting Tanzania and Mozambique, I think. And so when you talk about the non-alignment movement, yeah, definitely. That is why Jokowi, in his official statement about this Africa visit, he said that he is carrying the spirit of Bandung. So he is referring to that Asia-Africa conference in Bandung in 1955. And so this Africa visit can be seen as to reaffirm Indonesia's non-alliance policy that we have held since then. And to show that Indonesia sees Africa as important and that everybody is equal for Indonesia. Antonio Timmerman is CGSP's Southeast Asia correspondent based in Jakarta. She follows all things related to Southeast Asia and Asia more broadly now, and specifically on China's engagement in the region. Antonio, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Adhiri, I'm going to give you now the last word on BRICS before we move on to some other topics. You heard from Sanusha Naidu. In, in South Africa, you also heard from our colleague Antonia Timmerman and from Jero. Give us your perspective to help people kind of frame what they should be thinking about in this new BRICS Plus era. Well, I think new BRICS Plus era brings a lot of opportunities, especially for the existing and new members. The original members have indicated that they have agreed on a formula or a framework through which more countries can be added into the grouping. What that does is probably maybe they will reimagine the name if BRIC Plus will serve, that will be it. But I think that uh, more countries, especially the Global South, are looking at the opportunities that uh, await them economically in terms of investment, in terms of trade, in terms of a new form of global governance 
system that can be responsive to the needs and demands of these countries. And I believe that if they can effectively push together a joint focus on some of the key priorities that defines their interests, then they're likely to become a very strong force in terms of global economic organizing. And even politically, as you know, politics often are never divorced from economics. So I believe that uh, what is going to happen from here now is uh, many countries are going to be watching very closely beginning January next year to see uh, the transformative effect or otherwise that BRICS is going to have on the new members. But I think there is a lot of interest that uh, is coming from other countries in terms of wanting to join. And the pace might not be as fast, given what we've seen. And so I think that the BRICS formation may be probably advised to find more responsive frameworks to engage with these countries, which are not even members. And I think that's why initiatives like what we have seen during this summit of sort of focusing on regional engagement priorities. For example, this summit was basically looking at how BRICS can collaborate with African countries as a whole and not just the three countries that are going to be, be members now beginning next year. Okay, so you are a nice counterweight to my skepticism about the BRICS. So I'm very glad that you've been able to do that because, again, I, I've been a little bit critical over the past couple of weeks on it. Giro, okay, very quickly, because we are dragging this show on a lot longer than we normally do. Your final thoughts on BRICS before we go on to China-Africa trade? My final thought will be we'll have to see how BRICS is changing, the internal dynamics of the BRICS, what's the new approach they're going to take, because this expansion are going to create winners and losers. For me, the big question is, who is the biggest winner in this expansion and who is the biggest loser in this expansion? Because no matter how we want to shape it, the, some, someone has lost and someone is, is winning. And for me, my worry is from an African perspective, from when I think of a country like South Africa, and I raised it this week in the column I wrote, is to kind of wonder how South Africa is going to maintain its relevance now that we're expanding to new powerful countries into the group. And let's see how the BRICS dynamic is going to change and how the funding members are going either to see their power diluted or they're going to create a mechanism where they maintain a certain privileges. So let's see what the future holds for the BRICS. Well, we're going to have more coverage and reaction in the weeks ahead. I think a lot of the analysis is going to start coming in after this is all settled down. These are big changes. And a lot of the key themes that Harry pointed out are going to need some thought and a little bit of time. So we'll continue to keep that conversation going. Let's pivot now to a couple other topics that came up this week in the China-Africa relationship. We got some new data from the China General Administration of Customs, which is the most authoritative source when it comes to China-Africa trade. Overall, China-Africa trade in the first seven months of the year reached $157 billion. That's a 7.4% increase compared to the same time last year. Now, we're trying to forecast what we're going to finish the year at. So you take that $157 billion divided by seven months. That averages out to about $22.4 billion a year. Stretch that over a year, and we get to $269 billion. Now, that is lower than what it was last year, which is the total was $282 billion. But be careful because in the third and fourth quarter, there's sometimes a surge of trade that happens. So you we're basically going to be on track to be about the same as what we were doing last year. South Africa remains atop the list as China's largest trading partner with $31 billion in two-way trade. That accounts for about 20% of the total, Nigeria and Angola rounded out the top three. By the way, those are the same countries that have dominated the trade for the most part of the past 15 years. Uh, they're the largest markets. Then South Africa also 
is a little bit deceiving because it's not just South Africa, but a lot of the cobalt that comes from the DRC and a lot of the Southern African resources transit through South Africa and then get credited as being South African exports. A couple other points, Adhiri, before we get your take on some of this. Imports of African agriculture was up 20%, so that's something that's very interesting. The top African exports to China in the first seven months of the year, crude oil, iron ore, and copper. The top Chinese exports to Africa, machinery, electronics, and vehicles. So not a lot new in the data. It's basically what we've seen over the past several years. One point that I'd like to kind of make just to get your your take on it, the China-Africa trading relationship is oftentimes measured in absolute terms. So they'll say $282 billion is by far the largest trading partner that Africa has with any single country. Europe's trade on a continent-to-continent basis is significantly larger, okay, but on a bilateral basis, which is kind of a weird thing because why would you compare a continent to a country? But okay, here we are. It's a highly distorted trade relationship that the bulk of China's trade with Africa goes to about five countries. So we're talking about 62, 63% of China's imports go to the largest markets on the continent. And most of the exports come from the DRC, Angola, and the major commodity exporting countries, including South Africa as well. What is your take on these trade numbers and the current state of the China-Africa trading relationship? Thanks, Eric. I think trade has become one of the most dominant aspects of uh, China's relationship with Africa. Even though Africa, as you say, is often looked at as an entity, but uh, is having over 50 countries, <laughs> 54 to be exact. But I think what is uh, important is that uh, the China-Africa relationship in terms of trade is often looked at as, as an entity because of uh, you know programmatic uh, discussions under frameworks like the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. So China, as trade ties with the continent, has seen a lot of activity happening in just about a handful of countries, as you mentioned, including in this report that's just been released. So, but this, in my view, is is a matter of the sophistication of one, the Chinese economy. Many of these African countries are doing a lot of imports from China. Then secondly, many of the African countries that are exporting to China are exporting raw products. And so um, while it is great that we are seeing an, an increase in aggregate numbers of China-Africa trade, I would have wished to see more entry of uh, African produce into the Chinese market. There is a lot of effort to promote agricultural produce entry into the Chinese market. We've just seen a deal signed with South Africa to allow Jobak to export, I think, avocados to China. This follows Kenya, which uh, became the first African country to do this in August last year. And so if we see more marketization of African produce into the Chinese society, then that would uh, shift the focus from these aggregate numbers because in many cases, they represent what Africa imports from China. But at the same time, it's also important to realize that what is happening in terms of trade is that Africans are importing more of the things that can support the local domestic you know, economies become stronger. So we're talking about machinery, we're talking about equipment to build roads and railways. All these things are lumped together, you know, equipment for telecommunication. They are lumped together in the trade. But if you look at the net effect of it, in my view, I think trade between China and Africa is also helping in a way to foster the domestic conditions that would make African economies more competitive to sustainably change you know, the narrative about is it one way? Is it China-Africa trade or Africa-China trade or China-Africa trade? So I think in my view that while these numbers are often discussed in aggregate and it is good that they are improving, 
it's also important to pay attention to what is happening in terms of what Africans are buying from China and what they're using it for. It's also, I think... Just, just to, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just one minor correction. The numbers are really not improving, in part because when you look at China-Africa trade, again, in absolute terms, the number's going up from 257 to 282, potentially now this year to cross 282. But when you look at it in relative terms to China's total global trade, it's flat or going down because China's economy has grown, but the amount of Africa trade has remained flat, which is why Africa remains next to the bottom of the list of China's regional trading partners, second only to Oceania, the South Pacific. A lot of the oil buying that fueled the trade in the early days has shifted now to the Persian Gulf and to Russia. Much of what China used to buy in Africa, the oil, mineral, and timber, it can now buy elsewhere on the Belt and Road. doesn't need Africa as much anymore for that. So the China-Africa trade relationship in many ways is at a crossroads, in my view, that the Chinese economy is growing. At the same time now, the Chinese economy is encountering massive difficulties. And so the demand for a lot of the resources that Africa sells to China probably is going to go down quite a bit. So the question is, what are African countries going to do to diversify their trade relationships beyond China so they're not hitched to China in case this economy really runs into major difficulties and they don't need as much copper, iron, ore, cobalt, and other things like that? Interesting to get your take on that. Well, I think as it is, you're painting a futuristic uh, scenario where China probably got to get to a point where it doesn't require products from Africa anymore. We are not yet there. Well, we have no, no, not anymore, just as much. I mean... <laughs> so what, what I think is happening now is that the two sides have to redefine their framework of engagement. And this is what we are seeing, for example, with the Greenlands that uh, was agreed upon as one of the outcomes of the last ministerial FOCAC uh, summit in Senegal. So I think there is an opportunity for the two sides to constructively find sustainable ways of enhancing their trade, including offshoring of some of these Chinese companies that are now trying to make their way into Africa to engage in uh, value addition, for example, of produce. Because this is why African you know, countries are not doing enough, because they are forced to export raw commodities. But to process these commodities, they need investments in industries. And China is now increasingly willing to offshore some of that industrial capacity to Africa. So if they can strategically attract that, then I think in my view, they will be able to add value to some of these industrial, I mean, resources uh, raw resources and end up with better value in terms of their exports than what we're seeing now. Giro, you follow this issue very closely in your work researching African mining and China's engagement in the African mining sector. Is what Adhiri is saying feasible? I mean, is this something, I mean, we've talked about the value addition and the offshoring from China for decades now. It hasn't really happened, but we're in different era now. What do you think of what Adhiri is saying? It's really not happening so far because we've seen how Chinese companies have been reacting to the demand from countries like Zimbabwe, Namibia, Zambia, or DRC. They've been putting on the table the prerequisite that those countries are not meeting. That's why they say we are not ready to outsource uh, those transformation industries here and, the, and do the value addition here on Africa because it was not possible. As much as they say from the government perspective they are willing to do so, but from the on what's really happening on the ground, it's really not that. And I think it's referring to that 
that that President uh, Akaindi Shilime from Zambia made is the statement just uh, one hour ago before we, we do this show when he was mentioning the fact that under the BRICS we want to see a different approach of the BRICS where we see countries when they come to invest in a country they come and to do value addition in those countries and when you know with one of the major countries who is uh, investing in the mining industry in Africa is China I do believe that he was mentioning China and hoping that China would change his approach when it comes to value addition in Africa so as much as they say that yes we're going to do that but on the ground there is a lot of things that are lacking and I don't blame them I don't blame them the facts are real that some prerequisites are not met but the reality is they could do some and they could even go a bit further just like they did in, in, in Indonesia to get some value addition happen in Africa but so far we're not seeing that unless you're a country like Guinea where the Guinea puts uh, boots on the table and say if you don't do that I'm just going to kick you out unless you put those conditions on the table I don't think we're going to see much of change happening. Well, it's not happening that much in sub-Saharan Africa, but it's very important to notice that the deals are happening in Algeria and Morocco. And in Egypt and, as well. And Egypt as well. So North Africa does seem to be getting what Adhiri is talking about in terms of the value addition, some of the manufacturing, and some of that offshoring. I think some of the problems in Southern Africa tend to be related to infrastructure. Power is a big one. And governance is another issue, especially in your country, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where we are seeing a lot of that activity, which Adhiri wants to come to Africa, but it's happening in Mexico, and it's also happening here in Southeast Asia, where the Chinese offshoring is starting to happen with a lot greater frequency, in part because the Chinese want to try and circumvent U.S. sanctions. So by moving goods offshore, they're not subject to sanctions, and also they're free of the U.S. tariffs as well when it's made in Vietnam instead of made in China. So very interesting. Trade numbers will be coming out again at the end of the year when we'll get the final number. And Adhiri, we'd love to have you back to get your assessment on that as well. Very quickly, two more very, very lightning round topics I'd like to go to before we leave today. Number one, your president, Adhiri, in Nairobi, William Ruto, met with the CEO of TikTok. And there's a lot of concern in Kenya, just as there is around the world, about the lack of content moderation on TikTok. It is hugely popular in Africa as it is elsewhere. There's growing political pressure on Ruto to do something to crack down on the extreme content. And I'll be honest with you, just a little personal statement. My son is 14 years old. I don't allow him to have TikTok on his phone because the For You tab, which is that's the algorithmic recommended content, is just toxic. I mean, just awful. So I understand where Kenyans are saying this. What was the outcome of the discussions today between TikTok and the president? Well, as you say, TikTok has become a very visible platform here in Kenya. I think Kenya accounts for the highest TikTok usage in Africa and ranked very high well as well in the world. But there has been a concern that there's a Kenyan who petitioned parliament to regulate uh, TikTok, possibly to ban it. Uh, because of the things that you mentioned, some of these offensive or inappropriate content that uh, you know minors can access, uh, can stumble on, on this platform. So these concerns have been raised. Currently, Parliament of Kenya, the National Assembly, is ex- looking into this petition that uh, aims to ban TikTok if uh, allowed. Uh, but 
that is not uh, the view from everyone. I think a lot of people uh, within government and outside uh, believe that uh, TikTok can also play a very constructive role. As a matter of fact, a number of uh, members of parliament, when they were debating the issue, said they were on TikTok. Somebody even pointed at a member of parliament who was on TikTok as uh, he was making a contribution on the floor there. <laughs> <laughs> and said, this, is, this is something that that we really use in large scale. So the thinking that maybe it's not supposed to be banned outrightly because of the role it has played. You know, TikTok was, uh, for example, very useful in terms of releasing tensions uh, following the pressures of COVID-19. Kenyans turned to TikTok to make very creative videos and share the, the, the fun and just uh, reduce the pressure. So I think uh, reading from the script from Mr. President here, he also believes that we shouldn't ban TikTok, but we should find sustainable ways of moderating toxic content. So the discussion between the President Ruto and TikTok CEO uh, resolved, for example, to establish, you know, an office, a uh, TikTok office, uh, regional office in Nairobi, and also to engage, you know, uh, Kenyans in the moderation of uh, violent or toxic content that could be uh, found on the platform. I guess what frustrates me the most on this discussion, and it's the same thing that's frustrating me about in the United States as well, is that when you look at Douyin, which is the sister channel of TikTok, under, all under ByteDance, it's highly regulated in China. There's a lot of content that can't be displayed. And so it demonstrates that TikTok has the ability to do this well, but chooses not to outside of countries where it doesn't face enormous political pressure. My guess is that they will crack down in Kenya and they're going to crack down in the United States, but because there's big political pressure there. But in other countries, especially countries that don't have the same type of parliamentary pressure that Kenya is putting on the company or the leverage to force TikTok to come and set up an office, they're just going to be fed this ocean of crap content. The other issue, though, you know, Harry, that you brought up in terms of it did provide entertainment and relief, but... There's a lot of evidence that it's a source of massive misinformation, disinformation in Kenya and elsewhere in Africa as well. And that's another big problem to be worried about. But Eric, allow me here. I'm going to play the devil advocate for TikTok here. You mentioned the case of doing and everything. That My position on that question always be, if the rest of the world as countries, we are not willing to regulate internet the way China is doing it, we cannot really blame TikTok the way it's behaving in our countries because basically TikTok is going to behave in the margin of what we are allowing it to do. What's doing is happening in China is because China has put strong regulation on social medias that regulation that countries, democratic countries, aren't willing to put because it's anti-democratic, it's infringement on people's freedom and choice and everything. That's why we get what we want. So for me, it's like, yes, we cannot really blame TikTok on that. Either we adopt the same regulation that China use for the internet and social medias, either we just let it happen. And no, no, I don't think it's that binary either or because putting in suicide content into 11-year-old's For You feed has nothing to do with the political restrictions that China has on its content. There is no reason whatsoever that eating disorders, suicide content, violent rape, and all of those other things have to be put into 12-year-old's for you feeds and they know exactly who these kids are because they know more about us than we know about our own kids those algorithms are so sophisticated so i think that's a little bit of a cop-out in terms of saying well we don't want to be like china of course we don't want to be like china in terms of you know the amount of restrictions on information and, and especially a society like kenya that is a very vibrant free speech space but there is some room for moderation especially on this extreme content porn violence rape 
all of these other, and even severe misinformation, disinformation that needs to be moderated. I think there is some middle ground. Last word to you, Adiri. I don't think TikTok is the worst thing that has ever happened to the world technologically. I agree with you that certain elements uh, that are found there is not just palatable and irrespective of which country it is, there should be a mechanism of eliminating. I don't think this is about countries, it's about humanity and users who interact with this content. So if we find a sustainable way of eliminating, you know, harmful content, but doesn't have to restrict innovation, uh, like burning the whole up. Uh, So I think this is a question that every country has to grapple with, just to find a way of sustainably managing the harmful effect, but also allowing technology to play the transformative role that it has played uh, all along, Eric. Okay. Well, I want to take advantage of Adhiri's presence on the show just to kind of raise an issue that Giraud and I have been talking about for much of the past couple of years in terms of China literacy in places like Kenya and Africa as a whole. And this has been a point of frustration that we've noticed just as observers on the outside looking in that China's done really a fantastic job at building a lot of knowledge spaces around Africa. When you look at a lot of the university programs in Beijing, in Yunnan province, in Hunan province, in Zhejiang province as well, they've really invested a lot in African knowledge production, more African language education. You've got hundreds of thousands of Chinese who are on the continent working, studying, living, and so forth. I would say that the improvement of African literacy in China is quite impressive over the past 20 years. I haven't seen the same in Africa about China. Now, you have a PhD from a Chinese university, and Giraud is a graduate of Reming University in Beijing as well. So it'd be interesting to get your take about how well you think African governments and companies are doing to take advantage of the tens of thousands of African students like you who have studied in China and have this expertise. You know, talk to us a little bit about the knowledge gap or the China literacy issue in Africa and in Kenya, what you think about that. I think for a long time, the distance between China and Africa made it very difficult for the two sides to collaborate and interact closely but that is changing. We are seeing more Africans. Actually, today, I think more young Africans pre-COVID wanted to go and study in China than to any other place, simply because the education in China is uh, relatively affordable and relatively compares in terms of quality with uh, much of the global north. But as you say, once these guys are done with their studies and come back to their countries, the responsibility for their countries to find the best way to use them. But this is now not about a specific country or about China, but I think it's how countries uh, manage their knowledge. You know, it's a lot of uh, about knowledge bureaucracy. If Kenya and China, for example, are interacting and they are looking to understand better what things look like from the other side, there are, there are some resources at their disposal, some, some uh, like, uh, you know, students who've trained in China or students who've learned about the Chinese right here in Kenya. Because, again, Chinese presence in Africa Here in Kenya, for example, they're running four Confucius Institutes where Africans are able to learn the Chinese language pretty well. But let's be honest, the Confucius Institutes are very small in scale. I mean, they have 30 kids in a class or, you you know, this is that's not large scale in terms of improving China literacy because they don't have that many people, you know, doing it. It's pretty small. 
No, what we are seeing now is that there's a move beyond Confucius Institutes into Confucius classrooms. So these are adopted at high schools, you know, like here in Kenya, very influential high schools where they have created these Confucius classrooms and they're able to tap into the Chinese, you know, culture and language through virtual learning and teachers being sent to those schools. So that basically expands, you know, sort of access. But I think the question is whether there's a deep appreciation of this new knowledge resource that is created out of uh, these partnerships with China. And so it's up to every country, Kenya included, to begin to look at this as a resource in terms of its collaboration with China, in terms of understanding China better, in terms of even opportunities that they can get. Because a lot of times about um, most African countries, they talk about China in terms of big infrastructure projects, dazzling kind of initiative, but they forget about the little flames of intercultural development such as uh, you know you know language capability or china knowledge so i think if they put this together in their strategy they're more likely to do better in terms of the engagement with china than we see currently Jero, you've got a lot of opinions on this go <laughs> yes, I have a lot of opinion of that because the early result of the research I've started because, uh, as you know, Eric, I've started this research about what happened to those alumni, African alumni from China. And the results are quite interesting to see how many of them, most of them are saying their countries are not doing enough to integrate them in the China-Africa discourse. The countries are really not helping them at all into using them. And it's also going to be interesting to see how much many of them, they say when they came back, they were willing to work in the China-Africa discourse of the country, everything related to China and the country, but they didn't find any structure or any policy or any incentive that the government has put in place or the private sector has put in place to use them and to work with China. And most of them today, I, from the result I got, it's very on the early stage, but most of them are really not working on China-Africa space at all. That's really striking result and you kind of wonder what's going to happen. When Adere mentioned the Confucius Institute, yes, they're taking basically new people. They're taking new people, try to, you know, to do something to put them, to infuse some China his knowledge, but you have, I don't know, almost 400,000 people who are there who are already present, but you cannot just now use them because they're not scattered around the world, they just do something else, then they're not really following China anymore. And I think it's really something that African countries should do better. We have to become intentional in our way to interact with China. We have to become really strategic and intentional to say we are sending students in China because we want to use them as actors in our interaction with China. China in the five in the five or ten years to come. If we don't do that, if we just let the markets regulate people how they they come into the fold or how they work with China, we will never become smarter about China. We're always going to be on the losing hand. Okay, Adhiri, last point. You know a lot about this subject. You have a PhD from a Chinese university. You're very active in the space. You do a lot of research in it. What advice would you give to young Africans who may not have the chance to go and study? in China the way that you and Giraud did, how do they become smarter about China? What advice would you have for them? Oh, they just have to be open-minded. I think China today is in every African country, so to speak. There's a small Chinese presence everywhere you go in virtually all African countries. So the issue is to get interested and invested in understanding China. I think the challenge has been some of these, uh, you know, knowledge bases that traditionally pointed out some of the not so very attractive content about China. But I think that is changing. There are multiplicity of platforms today where somebody can get uh, very objective news and information about China. So they can, without going to China. Do you have any recommendations? Can you give me any specifics for where people should go to find out 
what's going on. Just begin. I want. I know people are interested in this subject, but they say, okay, what do I do? Where do I go? Well, to start with, for example, if you're in Kenya, we have, for example, the Chinese news media operating here from television to newspapers like China Daily are being printed and circulated. There is a China Global Television Network that are accessible via, you know, various subscriber-led distribution channels. And then we have... I mean, bearing in mind that's state propaganda, right? I mean, that's not really objective content. Well, you want to define it what it is, but if they talk about a bridge in uh, Wuhan, if you go to Wuhan and you don't find the bridge, maybe you can ask another question. <laughs> so, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, again, but it is just produced by a government with an agenda to promote China. I'm not necessarily saying it's bad. I'm just saying that it's not. They've got a position that they want to promote, which is the Chinese worldview. Any government all over the world has no business producing negative news about itself. Exactly. Exactly. And the same with Russia Today and Voice of America. Exactly. And therefore, you should just drop the, <laughs> drop the phrase propaganda, because if it is equal across the board, then we have no reason pointing fingers here. No, no, no. Propaganda is information with a purpose. That is the definition of propaganda. And so it can be corporate propaganda. It can be state propaganda. In this case, it's state propaganda. But there is a purpose behind it. I am yet to find information without a purpose, Eric. Yes, I agree. And that's what we're here for, of course. But that's not what CGTN is for. <laughs> I mean, like, and, and Xinhua. And by the way, when you talk to CGTN and Xinhua, they won't disagree with that. Propaganda in China is not a bad word. No, that's what I'm saying. But I'm just saying that we should not approach it as neutral, impartial information because it's not, by their own admission, by the way. Where would you, for example, get neutral information about the U.S.? Oh, I think, you know, we are blessed in the U.S. that we have an enormous amount of content. I mean, you know, we, again, our information knowledge space is rich. I mean, you don't go necessarily to CNN or, I mean, you, you know, when you think of the U.S. media, you think of five places. But again, when you look at Substack, for example, the quantity of incredible dialogue and information about the United States on social media, on Substack, in our universities, in independent media. We have an, a very thriving independent media sector in the United States. Alternative media, a whole wide range of content. I mean, the United States is actually quite strong when it comes to also discussions about itself. And that's something, again, in China, it's very difficult to find that, you know. Well, I guess what you're saying could be said of any other country if I ask their national. Let me just put it that way. It's a very great pitch that you put there. China doesn't have that quite as much because it's a much more restricted information space. I think it depends on the information that you're looking for. Of course, if you're looking for general information about what's happening in China, I think state media will remain the source of information and you're not going to receive bad news from the countries. But if you're looking different type of information, yes, you're going to have to resort to different mechanisms to talk to different people because China is a different context, of course. We have to admit that. They don't have the same freedom that we do see on social media where people can have substack and talk about those different issues. But you're going to have to go to those extra lengths to get those, I'd say, nuanced information, nuanced news. But it doesn't mean that when those statements are talking about what's happening in China in terms of infrastructure, in terms of investment, it's not true. It's true, but if you want extra, you're going to have also to go the extra length because the context is different. 
Okay. I think we could have started a whole other show right there on that topic. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is why, Adhiri, every single time you come on the show, it's always so interesting. So we are so glad that you joined us for this extra super deluxe long show. We almost went Joe Rogan length here today. You know, so hopefully people are staying with us right until the end. But we really appreciate it. Adiri, you are active on social media yourself. You are a source of information. Where can people find you? Now on Twitter, I'm at Carvin's World. You can check me out on the social. I'm also on LinkedIn at Carvin's World. On Facebook, Carvin's World at all. So you can just look me up. I will connect you. You know, there is no more Twitter, by the way. It's X. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I will put your X link, X handle. What are we calling it? Anyway, I still haven't gotten used to this. So I'll put your X address down in the show notes. Also, your LinkedIn, if people want to connect with you on LinkedIn. Lots of great things going on on LinkedIn, by the way. And this is where a lot of fantastic discussions, especially about China, Africa. So we, you know, I do, I post two or three times a week on LinkedIn, and there's just some amazing conversations. Also, uh, this show is playing on YouTube, and some fantastic conversations are actually happening there. Believe it or not, YouTube has some places for civil discussion about China. Uh, it's just mind-blowing. But it's happening, and it's happening on our channel, so you'll find the, the links to that in the show notes as well. And here gets, he gets our newsletter every day, and we would love for you to join our conversation and to support the work that Giro and Cobus and Johnny and Antonia in Jakarta are doing, the whole team around the world in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East uh, every day are doing. They need your support. It really helps us, your subscriptions. And uh, you can go to ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe. We'll give you a free trial for 30 days just to see if you like it. And then if you do, then you can uh, sign up. And then if you are a student or a teacher, email me, Eric, at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. I'll send you a link for a 50% discount because we want to make sure that students and teachers join our reader community around the world. So for Adiri Kavintz in Nairobi, for Jeronima in Mauritius, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you again for joining us on this extra long podcast. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at ProjetAfriqueChine.com and AfriqueChine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic.